Hope everybody's got their Bible there open in front of them. We're going to do a lightning 10 chapter sweep tonight. So I hope that you have read um, this part of Hosea and um, mm -hmm. I hope you're ready to go. I'll just remind us last week we, we did the first three chapters and you'll just recall that um, Recall that Hosea, the book of Hosea is actually a series of prophecies giving, given over uh, somewhere between 40 and 70 years. So it's a significant, uh, significant time period covered, primarily prophecies given or directed at Israel, the northern kingdom. But Judah is mentioned numerous times. We'll even have that on our slides this evening. So... Um, <clears throat> You'll recall that the, the story of Hosea, the first three chapters are really telling the story about he and his wife, Gomer, and their uh, marital struggles, and that serving as an analogy of sorts for God's relationship for Israel. And uh, that also, we, I guess we should really say his, his family life struggles because of the naming of the children as well. And we closed last week by uh, talking about how Hosea goes and actually purchases his wife back, uh, probably from some kind of indentured servitude that she had uh, sold herself into as a result of being uh, cast out of the home because of her unfaithfulness to him. And again, her unfaithfulness represents the unfaithfulness of Israel and Hosea's redemption of her, of course, represents God's redemption of his people. And so, uh, again, we're on Hosea, and this says 8 through 14. It's actually 4 through 14, as Stefana said. And so uh, we're moving right into chapter 4 then. And so, uh, again, chapter 3 sort of ended with um, or, or had this... Uh, Again, redemption of Gomer, but also then uh, shifting to talk about Israel and how the name of Baal must be removed completely. There must be a restoration of proper uh, and appropriate worship in Israel uh, for that redemption uh, at a national level to take place. And so in chapter 4, um, we have the beginning of God's case against uh, Israel. Go ahead. Um, so in this chapter, we've got basically um, two themes. Um, so God, first of all, starts to lay out a case against the priesthood or the religious establishment. And then we'll see like in um, chapter five, it'll be the political establishment. So um, so the, the religious establishment will be judged along with the people. And then the second big mm. theme that continues throughout the book has to do with the knowledge of God. So the core problem for the people of Israel, and then it's going to be for Judah as well, is lack of knowledge of God. Um, he says at the beginning of chapter four, there is no truth, no mercy, and no knowledge of God. So no knowledge of God leads to the downward spiral um, that you can see here in the in the notes on our uh, on our slide. Um, so there's a quarrel that God has with the priests and with the prophets. They all stumble together with the people. They, they mislead them. In other words, they're complicit in the worship of, um, of idolatry. And, oh, go ahead. And, and, and some of this is kind of interesting because you, re you recall when we talked about, uh, 
I think it was Amos, maybe, maybe, yeah, Amos, uh, maybe Joel as well. Um, oftentimes this pagan worship was mixed in with worship of Yahweh, worship of the true God, and they would just inappropriately or syncretize or blend the practices of the pagans with proper worship. And what that resulted in ultimately was the worship of the Lord was forgotten and the practices of the Canaanite religions, Baal worship, Ashtoreth, Molech, and others were practiced. And what's interesting is, so when in verses four, uh, in chapter, verses seven and eight, when it says the priests are no different, it even seems like they might even be encouraging the people to sin so that the people will bring more sin offerings, which the priests get to share in, in eating. So in other words, their own greed, their own gluttony leads them to encourage the people in the things that they should be discouraging the people from. And of course, drunkenness and idolatry and divination are, again, just a part of uh, that false worship. So um, so this lack of knowledge of God leads to um, what we might call like an, an anatomy of sin or um, kind of an, an understanding of sin uh, from, from the inside, like how, how sin proceeds. So lack of knowledge of God leads to stupidity in the worship of idols. Like it's idiotic to cut a piece of wood, carve it, and then worship it. (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll see that even later where he lays out a bit of an argument. I think it's in six. Okay. Um, So worshiping wooden idols, it leads to a dabbling in the occult. It leads to these um, these shrines all over the place, woodland shrines, mountaintops, hills under trees, you know, these that that represent um, Ashtoreth. Both men and women are engaging in idolatry, possibly in um, cult prostitution. And this is is leading to their own doom. Um, So um, I wanted to focus a tiny bit on the, on the poetry that appears here in verses five and six. Um, Hebrew poetry doesn't work the same as, you know, the same as our poetry. Um, Our son is having to do a, you know, like different kinds of poems, you know, haiku and different kinds of stuff. Hebrew poetry also turns um, in, in different ways on different um, literary terms, literary facets. So in five and six, it kind of turns on the repetition of certain keywords. So if you look at five and then going into six, um, he says uh, the word stumble appears twice. You stumble by day, you stumble by night. Then the word destroy. I will destroy your mother. Um, by lack of knowledge, my people are destroyed. Okay, and then knowledge, knowledge is lacking, knowledge is rejected, and then rejection. So rejection of knowledge of God leads to God's then rejection of the priesthood. And lastly, the word forgetting. And we've seen this before, that God is forgotten. But here he says, um, a forgetting of the Torah, of God's law, leads to God in turn forgetting their sons. And so there's just this, um, this very tight tightly packed uh, poetry that Hosea is using to, uh, to get his point across by these constant sort of repetitions of words. And the summation of his charge against the religious uh, sins of, of the nation uh, is in, in verse 15 when he says, you have taken, right, when he, when he calls Bethel the house of God, he, said, he, he refers to it with the... the you know, let's say the snide name of Beth Avin or the house of evil. 
So you've turned the house of God into the house of evil. All right. So in chapter five, um, we see a continuation of this downward spiral. And we see something else with, um, in, in verse four, it says that they do not know the Lord. But just before that, it says a spirit of promiscuity is among them. And they do not know the Lord. Promiscuity doesn't just have to do with um, sexual immorality. It has to do with going all over the place, here and there and, and everywhere and in every direction. And so we see this in idolatry, that they're going in every direction, like you saw in the previous chapter where they set up these shrines everywhere. And you see it also in their um, political alliances. They don't know which way to turn, and there's a constant flip-flopping politically. And so the spirit of promiscuity, it, um, it, it starts in the heart. Um, it's against the Lord. It turns anywhere else but to the Lord. And then it proceeds on um, through family life and through national life, through domestic politics, and then through international politics as well. So the spirit of promiscuity, this phrase appear, appears several times um, throughout the book. And, and so it's the idea of, of going every which way and being led astray, not knowing where you're going. So it's like a spirit of confusion that is upon the people because they don't know God. And so they chase after Egypt. If they think they can get a good deal with Egypt, they chase after Assyria. If they think they can get a good deal with Assyria, they chase after Baal. If they think Baal will give them rain, they chase after Ashtoreth. If they think it's kind of like, well, we'll just, we'll just reach out to whoever will, we think will suit our purposes. And of course that leads to uh, destruction and divided loyalties. And also thinking about how sin works um, you know, you don't make a covenant with God and then the next day make a mistake and then the next day you're doomed. You know, there's a progression that happens. It's sort of this anatomy that we see even in, for example, in the book of James, right? But we see this here in Hosea in, um, in chapter five. They're, they're attracted to idolatry. They're addicted to idolatry. They become enslaved. They're swindled. They're kept ignorant. They're blinded. And then they just go deeper and deeper into a slavery to idolatry. And they go into self-destruction, just, just kind of stumbling on. And then eventually, both the house of Israel and the house of Judah are just going to collapse. And so verse 8 gives us a word cry. You know, the, the alarm is sounded. Uh, and so now there's going to be a, um, a cry out against the political leaders. The government of Judah is corrupt. Um, they're seeking out alliances. Uh, and the Lord tells them, you know, your doom is sealed. You're not going to get away. No matter where you turn, you're not going to get away um, because the Lord is like a lion that attacks and tears and carries away his spoil. Um, but there is like a little note of, of hope that eventually, I mean, unfortunately, after the exile, but eventually Israel and Judah will both seek God, he says, in their distress. So we know when they're in exile, finally, finally, they repent and call out to the Lord. That'll be a long time coming, though. It's like the person who only calls out to God when things are their worst. And sometimes I think we're, we're all guilty of, that. guilty of that at, at, at one level or another. Right. Well, okay, in Hosea 6, uh, the people, they repent, but it's not a really heartfelt deep repentance. Um, it's, it seems to be very surfacely and pass, surfacy and passes quickly. Now in verse two, I'm go, we're going we're gonna to talk about that on the next slide. So I'll just say verse uh, two of chapter six, 
could be messianic. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Yeah, um, I just want to say about uh, about chapter six. Um, it sounds like they sort of have good intentions to return to the Lord. Like they they recognize their troubles are attributable to God's punishment, and then the solution also lies with God. So so they have to turn to God. Um, and from verses four and and forward to the end of the chapter, there's this lament that God speaks over Israel. It's like a parent. You know, we we started with Hosea's family and talked about, you know, God is a husband uh, in this marital relationship. And from chapter four and forward, the imagery shifts. Again, it's still in the family, um, but it's a relationship between a parent and a wayward child, a rebellious child. And so you can just hear the Lord saying through Hosea, what am I going to do with you, Ephraim? Just just throwing his hands up, uh, you know, wringing his hands. Your loyalty fades. He, prophets are sent to warn and convict, but but nothing helps. And God says, loyalty is what I desire, not sacrifice. Knowledge of God, again, that phrase comes up, rather than burnt offerings. So um, it's it's so bad in Israel that the indication is that even on their way to this false worship, even on the way, like the priests are going, they're committing murder. <laughs> like there's a total cognitive and spiritual disjunct um, that you're going to worship and on the way you kill a few people. It's horrible. Go ahead. Okay. Okay, so what do we do with verse two of chapter six? What does it say? It says, he will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So the question is, is this a reference uh, to the resurrection? Is this a reference to uh, resurrection for individuals? And it may be. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, uh, I'm going to read 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. And then he goes on to say, and he appeared to Peter and, and, and many others, right? So this notion of he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Where do the scriptures in the Old Testament say that he would rise on the third day? Well, maybe Hosea 2, right? It says he will raise us up on the third. I mean, Hosea 6, 2 uh, says he will raise up on the third day, perhaps, um, of course, it's not necessarily that. It might be a reference to Jonah, right, and uh, being expelled after three days, right, being three days in, in the belly of the fish, as Jesus uh, refers to. But what's interesting is that uh, in Hosea, later, we'll talk about this, Hosea 13, 14 is quoted in 1 Corinthians 15. So it may be that this, uh, that Paul had in mind in, when he's writing in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4, he might have had in mind exactly what Hosea says. Um, now, obviously in Hosea, he's talking about national restoration, right? The people repent and God will restore his people. But Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 37, you have the reference there, also uses the imagery of the resurrection of bodies to speak of national res restoration. And uh, many Christian interpreters understand Ezekiel 37 not only to refer to a restoration of Israel as a nation, but also to be a 
pointing to physical resurrection as our hope, which is, is our hope. So anyway, it's an interesting, interesting verse here in Hosea 6, talking about restoration and rising. So in chapter 7, this is the only slide that we have for chapter 7. Um, this is because the image of the oven in chapter 7 is, um, is quite extensive, and, and I think it's very interesting. Um, this um, is probably some kind of a, a reconstruction of, a, uh, of an oven, probably much smaller than what uh, Hosea is talking about right here. Um, but this, starting in um, verse 3, and through uh, basically verse 10, it turns on the theme of a hot oven. So um, in the beginning of chapter 7, Hosea is talking about the sins that are being committed, the injustice. It's, it's so terrible. It's too much. There's murder and um, robbery and fraud and raiding villages and just absolutely no regard for God's law. And so he uses this metaphor of the hot oven. Um, he talks about how the, the sin and the corruption in Israel is found even at the very top of the political system, and that this domestic corruption leads to international confusion and desperation and ultimate failure. So when we think about an oven, or when they were thinking about the oven, and I'll just say I'm not an archaeologist, and I don't even, I'm not even a good cook, <laughs> but um a, a, a large oven like they would have used, like kind of a, on a professional grade, let's say, a big uh, bread baking oven is, is a round structure, kind of a, a dome. Um, it's filled with coals. It's stoked by um, burning wood and with a, with a door open at the top for ventilation and also so that it can be covered later and stuff can be cooked on the hot coals inside. And so um, this, um, by the way, it's kind of like, I understand, like a tandoor oven, if you know how um, their, their bread is made, the naan, how it's made, it's put inside the oven to cook, just like you see, uh, just like you see on here, the bread is just, you know, stuck there and, and, and cooks. Um, so it can get up to 900 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Uh, that's super hot. So the description of the sinful passion for power as a heat, as a burning passion for domination and for political power, which involves flattery, treachery, plotting against the king, um, anger, poor decision-making in the heat of drunkenness. Um, this burning passion originates in their hearts. So it says their hearts are like an oven uh, into which the deceived king is drawn in to the assassination plot and murdered. And so if you remember what John told us last time, um, that there, were, uh, there was a lot of turnover uh, in the kings between Jeroboam II and King Hosea, uh, under whom finally Israel was taken away into exile by Assyria. So there was a lot of assassination, a lot of intrigue that was, uh, that was going on. Um, and finally, God says, um, all of their kings fall but not one of them calls on me. God is the true king, and nobody is calling on the true God, who is Yahweh. Um, yeah. Uh, following on then, um, in uh, uh, verse 8, uh, he says that Israel is um, mixed up, okay? And he also uses the, 
the metaphor of the, um, he says, unturned bread. They're half-baked, right? They're half-baked and they're mixed up. They're, they're mixed in with the nations by making alliances. They're mixed up in their political dealings. Their, their um, foreign policy became confused, desperate. I mean, think of the political instability, right? Their foreign policy then is desperate, frantic, self-contradictory, um, not well thought out, totally unstable. And so um, the idea of the, of the silly dove or the pigeon, they're like birds flying here and there. They're just flip-flopping between the two superpowers, Egypt and Assyria. And finally, they just made a complete laughingstock of themselves. So they became foolish and pathetic. They were easy prey for the big superpowers. And he says, basically, they're, they're dying and they don't even realize it because they're so arrogant they don't rely on Yahweh, anything but Yahweh. And so finally, they'll be brought down by the hunter's snare. Okay. And then in, in eight, he uh, continues this um, castigation of their political uh, and religious um, dealings. So in, in eight, four, he says they've set, Israel has set up its own kings, right? Kings that I did not appoint. Um, you recall last week we said that the only only one king in Israel was mentioned uh, at the beginning in the introduction to the book. Uh, that was Jeroboam II. But when you look at the time frame in which uh, Hosea preached, there were other kings in the north that aren't even mentioned. And uh, this is probably because they were pretenders to the throne. These were guys who took the throne by force, by intrigue, by assassination. And so, uh, again, here you have this sort of language. These aren't even the kings that I gave you. Number one, I'm, I'm your king, so you should never have asked for a king. And he's going to sort of address this with uh, sort of veiled references to Saul uh, throughout the, the book. But also, um, once you asked for a king, I gave you the kings, and you have now even gone astray from that. Um, and this is, this is kind of like we were saying before, uh, in, in 8, the second part of verse 4, uh, and then uh, through verse 6, he gives this argument against idols, which is, again, like Stefana said, you make it with your own hand, it's certainly not a god. If you made it, it couldn't be a god. And so it's silly to worship it, and yet the people are doing it. It should be obvious for all to see, and, uh, and yet it's not. And so he has this uh, phrase here, right? You sow the wind, but you will reap the tornado, you know, the whirlwind. Um, so, uh, again, it's going to sort of come back and, and harm you uh, in the end. I think this is a phrase that um, you probably have heard. It's the title of several books, um, maybe albums, uh, Sow the Wind and Reap the Whirlwind. And so um, this is, you know, they, they planted um, idolatry and now they're going to reap the judgment mm -hmm. of God is, uh, you know, they, they'll have to take the disastrous consequences of everything that, that goes with the idolatry that they have uh, uh, planted. And you see at the bottom there, we've sort of pointed out yet again, right, that that same notion of they don't know God's law. They don't know, right? Knowledge of God is missing. Um, it's, it's like strange to them. He gave them thousands of precepts, thousands of laws, thousands of words through his prophets, and yet it's like foreign, it's like, it's like foreign language to them. It's like they don't, they don't even recognize it as God's law. They're so far gone. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Mm -hmm. 
All right. So, um, so in chapter nine, again, he's, um, he's still talking about punishment, but also laying out a case. And there were a couple of things I wanted to highlight in chapter nine. So uh, it says that bread and drink will not be given uh, to, to God in verse four. Right? They will not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. Um, and those who eat will be defiled. So it's not, uh, they're not worshiping properly. They're not giving God his due. And, uh, and even if they were to do so, it would not be accepted because it's not heartfelt. And then you have this phrase uh, that comes up, well, the reference to Gibeah comes up numerous times in the book. It says that just as in the days of Gibeah in verse nine, uh, we also see it in, in five, eight and 10, nine. And so what is, what are the days of Gibeah? What is Gibeah? What happened at Gibeah? And there are a number of, a number of negative things that happened at Gibeah. Um, some, some commentators think it's a broad reference or a, a generic reference to trust in one's military. And it's, it's true that Israel was trusting in its military, at least during Jeroboam II's reign, as we said uh, before. Um, some think it's symbolic of Saul's kingship. Saul was from Gibeah. And so they think this is a reference to Saul's kingship because he, uh, he was a failed ruler. Um, but I think it's, I think it's re referring to probably the most horrendous act ever to have occurred in Israel, uh, an act that parallels the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So when we think of, when you think of the epitome of sin in the Old Testament, most of us would immediately say, if we were to survey folks, I would guess that most of us would say, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, well, if you look at the story uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah and you read it alongside a story found at the end of the book of Judges, um, Judges 19 through 21, it's a story of a Levite and his concubine, and they stop in Gibeah overnight, and the men surround the house, just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, and they want to have uh, they want to take advantage of the Levite and the, the, the visitors, right? So they're, um, and he pushes his concubine out. The Levite pushes his concubine out. She's raped all night and dies on the steps of the house. And they cut up her body and they send out the pieces across Israel. And the people are outraged. And this is when the first civil war happens. It's, it happens against the tribe of Benjamin. And so uh, Gibeah is the, the, the town where this occurred. It's, it almost leads to the absolute uh, destruction of the tribe of Benjamin. And, and this is what's interesting about Saul's kingship because he's a son of Gibeah. Um, and so I think he had a failed kingship from the very start. He doesn't fulfill the prophecy about the, the king coming from Judah, it's a wrong tribe, wrong city, and it should have been obvious to everyone. But the point here is that when he's, when, when Hosea brings up Gibeah, it's like the days of Gibeah. It's like you're back in Gibeah. He's talking about abject sin in Israel, sin on the, 
you know, on the level of a Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I remember I've heard some preachers say this, uh, talking about sin in America, and they'll say, if God doesn't judge America soon, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. It, it oftentimes gets a lot of amens. Um, I think it's, you know, God doesn't owe anybody an apology um, because he's God. And, uh, but nevertheless, right, the, the notion behind that kind of preaching is that the sin in the, in the uh, nation, the, the kind of national uh, turning from God is likened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus says it about Israel in his own day. Um, and uh, Hosea is saying it of Israel in his day. Um, I, I just also want to add um, at the um, around the end of uh, chapter nine, there seems to be a, a pretty um, pretty violent sort of imagery about being deprived, bereaved of, of children and um, not having any more children, your, your children being brought out to the executioner, etc. And um, uh, this is where Israel has gotten himself. Um, and uh, it, it, it looks like um, it seems maybe on, on one kind of one way of reading that, you know, God is doing this. Um, but I think what it's really saying is in that day uh, when, when um, Assyria comes, it's better just not to have, you'll, you'll pray. I, I'd rather not have had any children, you know, it's better, better to be completely infertile than to have to give your children to, uh, to the executioner. So um, this with this chapter, it's kind of like a parenthesis at the beginning, they defile, you know, they've, they've been defiling themselves for so long with idols. And now in the exile, they're going to be sent out and they're going to be further defiled uh, living among the Gentiles. So in 10, uh, we have some, some very telling uh, statements about Israel that sort of give us again, further insight into why these harsh prophecies are being brought against him, why the threat of invasion uh, by Assyria uh, as God's judgment is being laid out. And so what do we see? Well, I, I've highlighted a couple of these. So in 10.1, the more Israel grew in strength and the more Israel prospers, the more she rejects the Lord. Um, of course, we could say this is kind of like uh, Western, you know, Western Christianity when uh, oftentimes when we, the more we have, the less we turn to the Lord. And it should be just the opposite. The more we have, the more we should be thanking the Lord and giving back to him as uh, tribute what he has given us. Um, in verses five and six, he says, you trusted in the golden calves, uh, but they'll be taken away to Assyria who you are trusting in, right? You're looking to Assyria to save you. Um, and yet Assyria is going to take away your golden calves. Um, and uh, you trust in the golden calves. And as they're taken away, you're going to mourn over the calves. But no one mourns over the fact that they don't have knowledge of the Lord. No one mourns over the fact that you can't worship the Lord in truth. Um, and so as they have sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind, um, Hosea now encourages them through, uh, you know, the Lord through Hosea, um, sow righteousness for yourselves and reap faithful love, hesed, God's covenant love. Seek the Lord. You've plowed wickedness and, 
and reaped injustice, but you know, there's still the invitation for repentance. So righteousness, seek the Lord so that you can ex experience again his faithful love. And to encourage that repentance, uh, Hosea gives some imagery of what the nation will look like after Assyria comes in with their forces, um, right? Their altars will be overgrown. They'll become desolate and everything will be wiped out. Verse uh, 15, right? This thus will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. You'll be completely cut off. Well, Hosea 11 uh, is the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? This is like the gospel in the Old Testament. I love it. So, um, except the kid, except the kid, the, the kid doesn't return. But well, anyway, <laughs> well, eventually. Um, so this is about God's love for Israel portrayed again in the family relationship of the father and a rebellious child. So it's, it's retelling or recounting the story of God's redemptive history with Israel. So God liberated his son from Egypt. Um, and the imagery doesn't start here way back in Exodus. Um, I think Exodus four or five, uh, God says, Israel is my son. And he tells Pharaoh let my son go, right? Um, so God said he liberated his son from Egypt, and yet the more that he called them, they distanced themselves from God, who is their benefactor. They, they ran from him. And um, God gives them this image. Uh, it has such pathos, actually, an image of a loving parent who cares for a vulnerable child. He says he was the one who, who taught them how to walk and who carried them and who healed them. Um, and then the image shifts to kind of like a, um, a farmer, a rancher, being gentle with one of his um, animals, um, drawing them along, not with leather straps or, or with whips, but gently and lovingly and tenderly removing their yoke, right? So this, this could refer to um, the yoke of slavery that was removed from the people of Israel, um, stooping down to feed it the way that uh, God fed Israel in the wilderness and led them along with these, these cords of love and kindness and cared for them in a vulnerable time. And what did God get for all of this goodness that he lavished on his uh, beloved son, Israel? Well, the response was rebellion and rejection. And God says, my people are bent on turning from me, turning away from me. My people are bent on backsliding. Um, and yet despite this rebellion, God's heart is full of compassion for his son. And if we compare this with um, chapter six, verse four, where we saw before, he's like, what, what am I going to do with you, Ephraim? Right? So here God says, how can I give you up? How can I give you over? Um, he says, my, my heart burns within me. How can I surrender? How, how can I make you like Adma and Zeboim? What were those? Well, there were two cities that were in the neighborhood of Sodom and Gomorrah that got destroyed, right? So he says, how can I make you like those cities? I've had a change of heart and my compassion is stirred and I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I, he, he will not destroy them right? So God is like an anguished parent who deeply loves his child, 
God's righteousness demands justice against covenant breaking, and yet the justice is not unmixed with mercy. It's not merely punitive. The relationship is never dead in God's heart. His compassion tempers his anger, even though his anger is justified. But he doesn't execute his justice in anger, but in righteousness and in compassion, fully open to restoration of relationship. And so when finally they've called on him in exile, he will roar like a lion, you know, calling them back and they will come back, you know, like birds coming back home and they'll come home from their exile, just like the prodigal son. He said, I'll let them, you know, return and live in their houses again. In, uh, in Hosea 12, we have a, uh, an analogy to Jacob. He reminds them of Jacob, their forefather. Um, and uh, what did he do? Well, he grasped at his brother's heel. He struggled with the angel and overcame, or struggled with God and overcame. Um, an interesting story there, right? What does that mean? Well, what he does is he holds on to God and, uh, and doesn't want to let go of God until he receives a blessing from God. It's, uh, I think it's, it's an interesting story because it's got this determination to, uh, to, be, uh, to be with God, and he begs favor of God. Um, he also, uh, again, met the Lord at Bethel, uh, named it the house of God because that's where he saw the stairway, and he uh, uh, engaged God. And in fact, in verse for Hosea says, and there he, like God, spoke with us, even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Uh, what we see this, it's the Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name, not Baal, not Ashtoreth, not Moloch. It's the Lord, right? And so then there's this call to return to the Lord um, and, uh, and to, uh, you know, to, to turn from idolatry. But alas, the charge still stands uh, that Israel uh, is far gone. Uh, how far gone is Israel? There are rumors in verses 1 through 3. There are rumors of child sacrifice. Um, but yet God is the one who delivered. It wasn't these other gods. It was God who brought them out of Egypt and God who kept them through the desert. God who watched over them. And because of their rejection of him, then again, his judgment is coming upon them. And the imagery in 13 is he, he refers to these beasts from the wilderness, a lion, a leopard, a bear. He says a lion again. And then there's sort of this unnamed beast. Um, uh, and, and these are similar to the beasts described in Daniel. I wouldn't make too much out of the, uh, the particular order here in 13, but um, but it's uh, the, the imagery of these beasts in Daniel refer to invading nations, nations who come in and invade and uh, successively. And here, uh, Hosea, again, seems to be talking about Assyria, but he might also be talking about some of the others. Because remember, as he's giving his uh, charges against Israel, he's always sort of lumping Judah in there, too. Judah was not carried into captivity by Assyria, Israel, the northern kingdom was, Judah went 150 years later under Babylon and into exile. But it's worth noting Egypt because, some, I mean, after people were carried off into Babylon um, from, from the tribes of Judah, 
um, some people from Judah who are left over did flee to Egypt. And actually, if you look in um, um, the book of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah was taken to Egypt as well. And he probably, that's probably where he died. Well, so in, uh, at the end of chapter 13, he talks about, or in, in verses 9 through 11, he talks about the failed monarchies of, of Israel and Judah. He says, uh, I gave you a king, and then I took him away. Uh, he's probably talking about Saul here, possibly Jeroboam the first. Uh, but in, in either case, um, we have this sort of notion again. You asked for a king, I gave him. He was a failure and so I took him away. And why? Because God is their king and their true king. He's the only king who can deliver them uh, appropriately. All right, go. All right, so. Here's an interesting verse. Here's an interesting verse. In Hosea 13, verse 14, he says, uh, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, or O grave, where is your sting? Um, the second part of verse 14 is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as a, a proclamation of resurrection. But the challenge here is that in 13, this is all doom and gloom. Uh, the, the, the thrust of 13 is that God is going to judge them and death is coming upon them. And so there's some debate about how to translate uh, verse 14. Is it a question, uh, as I read, shall I ransom them or will I ransom them? Uh, or is it a statement, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Um, if it's um, if it's read as uh, as a statement, then it's a promise of deliverance, right? Surely, I God will ransom Israel from the power of the grave, right? I will redeem them. If it's read as a question, though, it may not be so positive uh, as talking about uh, this. It may be a rhetorical question with the answer of no. Will I ransom them from the power of the grave? No. I won't. I'm sending Assyria. Their doom is sure. He's already said this before. Uh, in the second part of the verse as well. So uh, again, how do we understand this question? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is uh, where are your thorns or where is your sting? Um, right? Where is your victory, oh, death, or where is your sting, oh, grave? Uh, how do we understand that? Well, again, if it's understood as, as a statement, the first part is understood as a statement, I will redeem my people, then the question, of course, is God is taunting death and taunting the grave because he is going to overcome it, right? And this seems to be how Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 15. But if it's a question, if it's a question then how, how do we understand this second part? Well, it might be that God is saying, uh, death, bring your sting on. Grave, bring on your uh, victory. Um, in other words, come and take Israel. I have, I'm done with them, and I'm, I'm laying them bare for you. Now, that would be different from how the Apostle Paul uses this quote in 1 Corinthians 15. Well, here's the question then. Can we, uh, can we reconcile these two? Uh, 
either way? And I would say, yes, we can. So how? Well, obviously, if we read it, if we read it as a statement and as a promise of God, then we have sort of an awkward, an awkward uh, and abrupt shift in chapter 13 for one verse, in verse 14, where God suddenly is talking about judgment, talking about doom, and then suddenly he says, but I'm going to surely redeem them. And then, he, and then he comes back and says, but I have no compassion. My eyes will not look on with compassion. And then, and then, and then in, in chapter 14, we have, again, a call to return. Now, it's pretty abrupt, and this is why some scholars are not comfortable with that reading of this uh, verse 14 as a promise of deliverance, uh, because it's so abrupt. But it wouldn't be completely outside the bounds of, uh, uh, of Hosea's other, pro other parts of Hosea's prophecy, um, for example, at the end of chapter five, he says, I'm going to tear them to pieces. And then in chapter six, at the beginning of chapter six, he goes, but when they repent, I'll come back and I'll bandage them up. So you have sort of a, a promise of, of destruction with restoration side by side. So it wouldn't be completely unheard of in Hosea, but it's more clearly when they repent stated right in, in those other verses. Well, if we read it as a question, like God is still continuing with the theme of doom, and so verse 14 is actually not a promise of deliverance, but actually a promise of doom, where he says, uh, will I restore them? No, I'm not. Death, come, bring your sting. Uh, grave, you know, bring your uh, victory, right? Is, if that is what he's saying, how do we reconcile that with the Apostle Paul? Well, it may be that Paul then is drawing out of here and saying there is a reversal of the misfortunes in Christ. So the Apostle Paul takes this and turns it around, uh, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, turns it around to speak of uh, the way that Christ has reversed the curse uh, uh, in his uh, resurrection from the dead. I'm personally, just to give you a, you know, an aside here, I personally am a little more comfortable with seeing it as a statement that God is going to ransom them and that uh, he is taunting uh, and challenging death. And it would be obviously just like Paul reads it. Um, but other evangelicals, uh, other Bible-believing scholars read it the other way. So... What do we have in verse in chapter 14? Well, what we have is um, right a call to the people to return to the Lord, a promise of restoration, uh, a, a promise of abundance. So these are these are pictures of Israel. Um, this is actually the desert after a rainfall, and this other one, of course, are crops in Israel. But he's. I, I, I thought it was good to close with verse nine there at the end of at the very end of the book. Let him who is wise understand. Let him who is discerning know, right? So we have this reference again to knowledge. Remember we said there's a theme throughout Hosea's prophecies about there being a lack of knowledge of God, a lack of knowledge of his word. Um, and here at the end of the book, it closes with, if you're wise, let, him, let you understand, be discerning and know God's word. 
So just in summary, just to sort of say, say it out, what do we have in Hosea? When you think of Hosea, well, obviously most of us think of that first part, the analogy of his marriage and his fa family relationships to God's relationship to Israel um, and the, the struggle. There's, there's unfaithfulness, there's separation, but that unfaithfulness, that separation is not permanent. There is re uh, restoration, but God judges uh, his people. He sends judgment. He brings judgment upon them to induce them to repent so that they will return to him. And when they do, God restores. He's merciful. He's loving and uh, he's gracious. Um, the key, though, in all of this is personal, intimate, right, relationship with God. When we say intimate, we mean like familial relationships, like a parent to a child, like a husband to a wife, right? We should know the Lord, and Hosea called the people. So in the Old Testament, how were the people to know God? They're to know God intimately and personally, just like we do. Um, the Assyrian captivity, even though there's, even though it's horrendous, it's horrific, it's tragic, and uh, it seems like all is lost, even that captivity where the tribes are carried off and seemingly uh, destroyed, yet it does not negate God's covenant promises to and through Abraham. Uh, and then ultimately, of course, Hosea includes promises not only of national restoration, right, a restoration of Israel uh, and a restoration of Judah and a united Israel and Judah back in the land, but also there's a, there seems to be a promise of personal resurrection in Hosea. Anything else you're going to say? No, I think you said it all. I said it all. Said all right. So next week, Micah. Will be much shorter. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't we ask uh, Pastor Kevin to close us in prayer tonight? I would love to. I would love to. Thank you guys for leading us well tonight and sharing, learning quite a bit from Hosea. Appreciate you guys. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you that, Lord, we have the opportunity to open it and freely study it and listen to your spirit. And God, even though we may fall on different sides of uh, understanding or believing one way or the other, God, we still are unified believing that God, this book is truly inspired to lead us to salvation and to equip and empower others uh, to also be involved in the mission, in the task that you have given us as believers. God, we are so grateful for giving us the knowledge and the understanding, but God, may it lead us to be obedient and faithful and apply what we've learned so that others may have the opportunity to respond in obedience to your gift of salvation, your gift of hope, your gift of love. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for tonight and this time of studying your word. Now, as we, as we depart, as we leave, may your spirit lead us and may your, may your glory be made known here on earth, here in the Meadowbrook area, in Birmingham, in Shelby County, and lead us as a church, Father, to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.